Hey everybody, it's Shaman Sister Sin, and you're listening to the Meditations and More podcast brought to you by BetterHelp.com and LittleShaman.org. That's me, the Little Shaman. Today, I wanted to talk to you about something that's not talked about enough regarding relationships with narcissists, and that is the addiction component of these relationships. Many people have stated that they feel like they are addicted to the relationship or even to the narcissist themselves. While it is not the case that people are addicted to the narcissist, there is an addiction involved in these relationships. It is an addiction to the drama cycle of the relationship. This is a component of what are known as trauma bonds and is perhaps one of the most important yet most ignored aspects of the relationship as a whole. People are continually frustrated and even judged for having such a difficult time exiting the relationship, and a lot of it is related to the addiction aspect here not being understood. The addiction aspect works in the brain in a similar way to opiate addiction and appears to be almost identical in form and function to an addiction to gambling. Gambling creates patterns of operant conditioning and schedules of intermittent reinforcement that can create an addiction, particularly when coupled with existing vulnerabilities of some kind, such as beliefs surrounding our ability or responsibility to cope with and manage toxic relationships, ego narratives regarding losing or failing, and more. Operant conditioning is what it's called when you learn to do or not do things in order to attain something positive or to avoid something negative. It's the use of punishment or reward to reinforce behavior. For example, when you were a kid, maybe your mom always yelled at you to clean your room, so you cleaned it to avoid getting yelled at. Or if she said she would give you $10 to clean it, then you cleaned it in order to get the money. People dealing with narcissists know that this kind of conditioning is omnipresent in these relationships. They are nothing but a cycle of punishment and reward. This is by itself enough to create an addiction, but there is another element here that works to create addiction as well, and that is the partial or intermittent reinforcement, which we also see in gambling addiction. When you gamble, you aren't rewarded every single time you play, but you are rewarded enough to convince you that if you keep playing, you will be rewarded again. This is the intermittent part of intermittent reinforcement, which means that the reinforcement, the punishment or the reward, does not come every time you engage in the behavior. You don't know how many times you're going to have to pull the lever before you're rewarded. It could be five, it could be 50, it could be 500. The reward also doesn't follow any type of pattern and it's not predictable. This is called a variable ratio schedule. A variable ratio schedule of intermittent reinforcement produces the highest, most steady response rates because of the uncertainty of when the reward will come. Behavioral responses and patterns created using a variable ratio schedule of intermittent reinforcement are often stronger and can be much harder to break. The uncertainty of when the reward will come not only reinforces the operant conditioning, but for some, it actually causes more dopamine to be released in the brain, especially when they feel they came close to winning. A growing body of evidence regarding dopamine production in the brain suggests that losses may actually motivate gambling behavior more than wins because of this reason. This is the way a slot machine operates. People are excited by the reward of winning money, of course, and that is what induces them to begin playing and to continue playing to a certain point. But they can become addicted due to the uncertainty of the reward schedule. A predictable game is dull, even if you win. 
an uncertain one is much more fun and attractive. A game considered to have equal odds, meaning that you have a 50-50 chance of winning every time you play, is the most attractive game and the most dopamine-inducing. With a slot machine, the occurrence of the reward is not known, but every time you pull the lever, there's an equal chance that it could happen. This keeps people engaged in the game and can result in what's called loss chasing, where instead of getting up from the machine or the table after they've lost, compulsive gamblers double down and keep playing. As an analogy, let's say you put $10,000 into the slot machine and then you quote-unquote win $2,000. This feels really exciting. It feels like a big win. It's not. You didn't win anything. You lost $8,000. They just gave you a little bit of your own money back to reward you because if they don't give you something, you're not going to keep playing. This is how a slot machine operates. This is also exactly what happens in relationships with narcissists. There is an initial excitement and reward that induces people to begin engaging, love bombing during the idealization stage. There is operant conditioning that creates behavioral responses, such as splitting and extreme black and white perception resulting in alternating between idealization and devaluation and intermittent reinforcement of that behavior delivered on a variable ratio schedule because the narcissist's reaction to things is unpredictable. As with gambling, there is the hope of a jackpot or another big reward, but also as with gambling, that is not what keeps people engaged after a certain point because the promise of a reward that never comes is not enough by itself. Without any positive reinforcement, that will not keep people engaged. It's the smaller rewards and the perceived near misses that induce people to keep chasing. That's why the slot machine shows seven, seven, lemon. And that's why it reveals this very slowly. It builds anticipation, cranks up dopamine production in the brain, and gives people the feeling that they almost won. In relationships with narcissists, people experience the same thing, and it induces them to keep engaging, keep trying, keep working for that reward. This also offers a partial explanation of why people still feel so engaged and invested in the relationship after they are receiving much more punishment than reward, which eventually does happen as the idealization time between devaluations becomes shorter and less intense over time, and the narcissist begins to see the relationship and the other person as irredeemable. Not only do losses also stimulate dopamine production, which actually makes them into rewards in a manner of speaking, but punishment is still a reinforcement. Therefore, the relevant operant conditioning is still being actively reinforced. Trying to avoid negative reinforcement such as punishment and the reward-seeking addiction component of these relationships keeps people performing according to this conditioning and still, quote, in the game, even when they no longer want to play and even when their losses are too big to logically continue just as we see in compulsive gambling. Also, as we see in compulsive gambling, people in relationships with narcissists and other unpredictable personalities attempt to reduce their losses. They try to find patterns. They come up with management strategies. They look for ways to, quote, game the system so that they can figure out a way to generate a more predictable response. This is very similar to compulsive gamblers believing there are skill sets or systems or strategies that they can use to help them to win. Because of the random schedule of reinforcement, there are times when these strategies can appear to be successful, which creates even stronger reinforcement. There are times when it does appear to work. The reality is that both with slot machines and with people, you're dealing with a mechanism that you have no control over and there is no way to game the system. For all intents and purposes, it's random, and there's no way to predict it well enough to reduce the level of danger involved. 
Among the many similarities here, though, there are also some differences. One of the biggest differences is that when you're gambling, you technically do have a chance of winning a jackpot or some other really, really big reward. It's not likely, and though the odds appear to be 50-50, they're really not, but still, technically, you could win a jackpot. With narcissists, that's not the case. The odds are much, much longer than 50-50. They're not 70-30. They aren't even 90-10. They're zero. You will never hit the jackpot because there is no jackpot. You are playing in a casino that's bankrupt, a casino that cannot pay you even if it wanted to do so, which it doesn't. All of the quarters you and everybody else have been feeding into this machine are not just sitting there waiting for the right combination of numbers or the right pull on the lever. They're gone. They have been used up running the casino at a loss, and you will never get them back. You will not recoup your losses, you will not break even, and you damn sure ain't winning no jackpot. The best you can hope for is that you don't walk out of this bankrupt casino, now bankrupt yourself, with everything that you've put into it gone to keep it functioning so other people can come lose their investments too. Another difference is that when you're gambling in a casino, you're gambling with money. In a relationship with a narcissist, you're gambling with things much more valuable than money. You're gambling with your future, your happiness, your energy, your peace. You're gambling with your life. Get up from the table. It's hard. It's painful. But get up from the table. You don't have to play. This is another reason why no contact is so important. As long as the operant conditioning is still active, and it is if you're interacting with this person, and as long as intermittent reinforcement is still offered on a variable ratio schedule, and it is if you're still interacting with this person, then this situation is very difficult to break out of. We have to act against the conditioning in order to break it, and when it's still being continually reinforced, this is extremely challenging. When we've been dealing with narcissistic people, we are confused, bewildered, upset, gaslit. It's very important to learn what we're dealing with and to understand why narcissists behave the way that they do. But after a certain point, that's not enough. We also need to understand what's going on with us and why we are making the choices that we're making too. That is arguably more important to understand in the end because it's the thing we actually have power over. The reality is that once we can understand these things and once we're able to then work on our own stuff, it eventually won't matter what narcissists are doing or why because it won't affect us in the same way anymore and we won't keep feeling the same pull to engage with them. In other episodes of this show, the statement has been made that the biggest battle we face when dealing with narcissists is not with the narcissist, it's with ourselves. Not only is that the reality of the situation, it's also the only battle that's actually worth fighting here. Attempting to fight narcissism in your life or in society by engaging in battles with toxic people is a gigantic waste of time in so, so many situations. Most of the time, it's not only totally pointless, but often it actually makes things worse for us. We end up engaging in behavior we would not have otherwise engaged in because these relationships generally bring out the absolute worst in everyone involved. There's a quote by Nietzsche that is very relevant here. Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. And if you gaze long enough into an abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you. This means that when we're engaging with someone or something that is horrible, even if we're in opposition to it, we run the risk of becoming horrible ourselves if we're not very, very careful. And the longer we do that, the higher the risk becomes. 
even the most moral, ethical, kind-hearted, wonderful, empathetic person will eventually be corrupted by a toxic environment if they are in it long enough. To use a spiritual metaphor, engaging with the devil on the devil's own turf is not a good idea and it is for this very reason. If we want to fight toxic narcissism on a spiritual and societal level, then we need to each battle our own egos. That is where true change really comes from for us and for the wider world around us. I hope this clears a few things up for you. As always, I look forward to your comments, questions, and suggestions, so please keep those coming. I take appointments online over the phone, via text, via messenger, via email, and through Skype worldwide. So if you're interested in speaking with me one-on-one, you can visit littleshaman.org to do that. I teach workshops, seminars, and clinics multiple times throughout the year. So if you're interested in seeing what we are running this month, you can visit littleshaman.org to do that. And if you're interested in joining our support group with twice weekly meetings, access to exclusive content, a group chat, and more, you can visit littleshaman.org to do that as well. You've been listening to the Meditations and More podcast brought to you by betterhelp.com and littleshaman.org. That's me, Little Shaman. May the Great Spirit bless you. Have a wonderful day.